What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. So I have a monstrous hole in my heart right now. Why is that? There's no Game of Thrones on. There is no Game of Thrones on. You're right. Usually this is the time where Game of Thrones is either on in full swing or just about to start. And, uh, and we're starting our rewatch to get caught up, make y- sure we're ready for the next season. We're rewatching the previous season to get ready for the current season. I'm planning a Game of Thrones premiere party. And... Yeah, it's not happening because it's not coming till 2019. That's so terrible. It really is rough. Yeah, and I I have the same hole in my heart. I'm like longing for that, you know, medieval battle and fantasy world and good and evil being blurred along the lines. And I'm really missing that show right now. Uh, So it's also been a while since we dove into the world of Game of Thrones and Westeros and Essos and the known world. And we, you know, we started a series of character studies, and I think it might be a great time, since I'm sure everybody else is missing Game of Thrones like we are, to go back and explore another one of our favorite characters. Yeah, so this week on The Midnight Myth, we are going to be doing a character case study in everyone's favorite imp, Tyrion Lannister. All right. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk Tyrion today. There's a lot to get through there's a lot to discuss. He is a fan favorite, and um, i he's one of my personal favorite characters. He is the only actor on the show that I think won an award for his performance. I think he won, was it an Emmy, Peter Dinklage? Golden Globes, Golden too, Globe. I think. He won a bunch of awards because that's how awesome he is, and has made Peter Dinklage a household name and a international superstar, and I'm ready to do it, but... Before we dive into um, all things Tyrion, all things drinking and knowing, um, if people want to reach us, Laurel, how can they? We would love to hear from you. We have tons of ways you can reach us over social media. You can tweet us at The Midnight Myth, or you can visit us on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, or over on Facebook. You can also head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, and drop us a line there. And while you're at it, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe and leave us a rating or a review so we can help other people find the podcast and join our community. Great. So you guys, if you're new to the podcast, um, we have done Game of Thrones character case studies before. So this is going to be in that same vein and tradition where we are going to focus on one particular character of Game of Thrones. We're going to discuss their history, what they represent, in the show, what they mean to us, and uh, let's, uh, without further ado, let's jump right into it. Just a little more ado, just to uh, you know, make sure everybody's on the same page. Uh, Derek has read all of the books. I have not read all of the books. I've read uh, the first two, and I'm working on getting started on uh, on the third book. So we're primarily talking about show Tyrion. So there will be spoilers for the show, not as many spoilers for the books but I know that those stories do tend to diverge. So we're going to primarily focus on the HBO series, Game of Thrones. Awesome. Yeah, very, very true. All right. So let's do a quick history, who Tyrion is, how he has gotten to where he is at. Tyrion is the final son of Lord Tywin Lannister. The Lannisters are, they uh, rule the Westerlands. So they rule the West of Westeros. um, And his father Tywin is one of the most ruthless and feared lords. 
The Lannisters are known for being very ostentatious, very wealthy, and very cunning and vindictive. They rule from Casterly Rock, which is their castle and their stronghold. What's really interesting about Casterly Rock and the history of the Lannisters is that they kept the name of the house that held that castle before, House Casterly. It was swindled away from them by the trickster Lan in a, a time before you know the, the, the world that we're in now and the history of that world. And they kept that as a marker, as a moniker of the house that they defeated through their cunning to earn that power as a reminder not to mess with them. Yeah, their house um, words are hear me roar, but the most common saying about a Lannister is, a Lannister always pays his debts, which is both a reflection of their wealth, they can pay any debt that they incur, as well as a statement about vengeance. If a, a Lannister wants to get vengeance on you, you're pretty fucked. Um, you're usually going to end up dead. So Tyrion has um, a, two older siblings, his older brother Jamie and Cersei. They're twins, and they're also lovers. So Tyrion enters into this story. We first see him at the North. He is a pretty, he's an alcoholic. He is also a, a bit of a sex addict. So he spends a lot of time in brothels. He is very clever. He's obviously, he is a dwarf in in the uh, the Westerosian term. So yeah. he is a little person. Yeah. When he's introduced, even before we see him, we hear Arya kind of running through the castle like, where's the imp? Because she's heard stories of him and wants to see this little goblin of the Lannister clan. Turns out we see him and he's a dwarf. He is something that we would recognize today as a little person, like you said. Yeah. And um, so in the story, he goes to the wall with Jon Snow. He... Um, ends up getting captured by Catelyn Stark, who accuses him of trying to assassinate Bran, a crime in which he is innocent. She takes him to the Vale. He demands a trial by combat, and he meets his uh, his companion, Bronn, who ends up fighting and winning. Tyrion gets his freedom. He gets captured by the uh, sort of mountain tribes of the Vale. He sways them to serve him, and he joins his father in the Battle of Five Kings, in which... Uh, uh, after winning a small sort of diversion skirmish when uh, Rob Stark's kind of kicking the, t- the Lannisters' asses all over the battlefield, he gets told to be co- to rule as Hand of the King, uh, to be Joffrey's Hand of the King. So he goes there. He rules admirably and well, defends the castle from an attack from Stannis, and uh, ultimately loses his position as Hand of the King. He demands that his father give him his inheritance when his father returns to uh, King's Landing. His father says, fuck you, you're a dwarf and I hate you and you'll get nothing from me. He marries Sansa Stark as a way to kind of foil a plan of the Tyrells and uh, ends up then being arrested and accused of per- poisoning Joffrey. He goes to a trial, demands a trial by combat. Prince Oberyn of Dorne represents him. Prince Oberyn loses. God, a lot of shit happens to Tyrion. So much happens to Tyrion. <laughs> yeah. This is a monumental task of, <laughs> yeah, of just doing this. his arc. Long story short, he ends up killing his father and his escape from his execution and his escape from King's Landing. He makes his way through Essos, meets Daenerys Targaryen, becomes the Hand of the Queen, and is now back in Westeros trying to vie for Daenerys' birthright and run, help her run her armies and her alliances and strategies and whatnot. Amazing. Uh, what are the things that we know about Tyrion as a character? From the outset, we know that he is hedonistic. He is primarily self-interested. Like you said, he's an alcoholic. He loves sex and the pleasures of the flesh, and he indulges in those with without equivocation. He is open about how he loves to whore and drink and indulge in the pleasures of the world. Uh, but we also know that he is genuinely pretty decent. When you put him up next to uh, other Lannisters, primarily his father, Tywin, and his sister, Cersei, who are supremely self-interested and interested in the legacy of the Lannister clan, there's sort of a, a, a different sense that you get about Tyrion, that because he's grown up with uh, this focus of distaste around him, that he has been vilified by his appearance and by his uh, his behaviors that are not as elegant or not as noble as the noble house he grew up in, that he grew up in a different way and isn't so interested in the legacy of the Lannisters, but is more interested in like, how can I swing these to 
my benefit and how can I continue to survive even though everybody wants me to croak? Yeah. So I like the theory and I've had this theory that all of the main characters of Game of Thrones represent a moral political philosophy. And I'm approaching Tyrion. The question is, what philosophy does Tyrion represent? To me, Tyrion represents utilitarianism and consequentialism, right. which are similar but not necessarily the same. So a consequentialist will ask, how do we know an action is good? What makes a good action good? The, their response to that question is, well, it depends on the consequence of the action. So the outcome of an action is what determines whether it's good or it's bad. So take an action such as killing someone. If you kill someone, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, a consequentialist will say, well, it depends. Did the person deserve to die? Right. Did you kill Hitler? Did you kill a bad person? Did you get caught? You know, did you get away with it? Are all questions that a, if it is, if you did kill a person who is innocent, is it okay because you were able to cover up the murder? If you were, was it really a bad act? Does anyone know that you killed them? Did anyone suffer because that person is no longer there? So it's all based upon the consequence. So out of consequentialism comes the other moral philosophy, utilitarianism. And what utilitarianism says is that, yes, the consequence is what determines whether something is bad or good, but it adds something else. It says you have an obligation to maximize the most amount of good, good for the most amount of people. So that means that the consequence of your action has to relate to doing more harm, or pardon me, doing more good than harm. So it's a pragmatic example of this. Let's say you're, um, let's say you're hand of the king, and you're trying to govern, and you have a small council that you need to govern. But it turns out that someone in the small council is talking to the queen, and everything that you're planning, the queen knows which isn't necessarily a bad thing, except the queen is self-interested. The queen is not actually interested in governing the realm effectively. The queen is interested in her own power. So you need to figure out who's spying on you. Well, Tyrion faces this exact problem. And in the utilitarian framework, he's like, well, what's the good here? I can't govern, which means I can't do good for the people of the realm if my actions are always being undermined by the queen. So I need to figure out who's spying on me. So what does he do? He tells every member of the small council a lie. And he wants to see and all a different lie and all about Marcella, the princess Marcella, the queen's daughter, who she's going to marry. And whoever tells the queen, he will end up hearing from the queen that she knows this plot, and then he will know who spied on him. And in this case, it was Master Parcel. Right. So Tyrion, in other words, is okay with doing something that uh, a follower of rule-based morality, deontology, would say is wrong. You can't lie. Lying is wrong. It's against the rules. Tyrion's like, you know what? Lying's okay as long as the consequence allows me to do good. And in this case, good is him being able to be an effective hand of the king, which means he can effectively rule Westeros. So he's okay with breaking the conventional rules of morality as long as the consequence is one that works out in his favor. You know, and we see this cunning at all times in Tyrion's character arc. In just about every scenario that he's in, he's trying to maximize his pleasure or maximize the good while minimizing the harm. Yeah. Um, utilitarianism and consequentialism are interesting and they are they're nuanced in a way. They are, like you said, they're pragmatic solutions and pragmatic uh, moral philosophies to live your life by. Uh, the thought experiment that will blow your head up if you have trouble with ethics questions like I do is this uh, utilitarian question of, okay, so we have a train track and you are right by the switches of the train track and it forks into two paths. And if it goes one way, the way that it's heading now, it's going to run over 10 people who are tied to the train track. The only way to make it not run over 10 people is to pull the switch and it'll go the other way where there's one person tied to the train track. Now, the question that you're faced with is, I want to do maybe the most good or do the least harm and save 10 people's lives. But to do so, I have to sacrifice one life. And there's an interesting uh, way to 
kind of find your way into this where, yes, of course you want to save as many lives as possible, but to have to be in the position to make the choice to sacrifice and to weigh the value of a single human life or a small amount of life versus the greater good can be really difficult for people to understand, especially if you're someone who lives on rule-based moral systems. So Tyrion is interesting because it's hard to imagine finding, you know, glamour in that. And it's hard to imagine that being sexy, being the person who's like, I'm going to do what's going to do the most good for the most people, even if a lot of people get hurt doing it. Uh, you know, fewer people would get hurt than if I didn't intervene. It's it's not as sexy, but sometimes it's what has to be done. Absolutely. I, uh, I totally agree with that. And um, if you're in power, often you can't think on a rule-based moral system. Often you have to argue for some form of consequentialism. You know, uh, and Tyrion understands this better than, than most. Another example of him using utilitarianism as his sort of guiding moral principle is when Daenerys and her dragons are gone from Marine. He is Hand of the Queen, and the old slave masters are trying to upend and destroy the city. So what does Tyrion do? He makes a bargain with the slave masters. He says, okay, if you stop this insurrection, we realize that slavery is over. However, I'll let you phase it out. We can gradually reduce slavery over a period of seven years, and that way we can have peace. Something that uh, his advisors, who are former slaves, it's, they cannot stomach and they think is horrendous. They distrust the slave masters and they don't want to make a deal. Whereas Tyrion would say, listen, we can either let Marine get destroyed in this uh, ex-slave master resurrection, or I can make a deal that, yeah, hurts people, but it gets us to where we need to be. Yeah, yeah. It's On principle, it's difficult to stomach, especially if that's uh, an area where you have previously been hurt. That's an area that is personal to you. The other great example of this with Tyrion is uh, fast forward to season seven when Jon Snow is in the presence of Cersei and Cersei asks him to bend the knee in, in favor of you know Cersei and the Lannister army going to fight for them in the north. And Jon won't do it. He's already pledged his allegiance to another queen in Danny, And... Tyrion's response to this is, couldn't you try lying? Because sometimes you just need to tell a little white lie to, to get what you need and to move on and to fight for the greater good, right? And that's what John is all about, is like saving all of Westeros from the, the, you know, the terror of the North. He's trying to get the most good for the most people, but he's unwilling to compromise his own firm stoic principles that are in many ways very rigid and unwavering. And Tyrion represents this really interesting calculated, uh, even though he has come from a self-interested past, this character who is very savvy and very much able to read a room, read the consequences of every single word and action, and things have worked out for him before. So we're seeing this interesting play between characters who are unable or unwilling to move on their moral principles and this other character who kind of dances around them and everything has worked out for him so far. Sure. You know, and um, I, I don't know, it's tough to say everything has worked out for Tyrion so far. He's certainly, of course, but he's, he's been had, through a lot and yeah. survived uh, and more than most people and survived and come out on top. This is in true. In a position of, of greater power than where he started. This is true. His position as Hand of the Queen is secure, and should Daenerys win the Iron Throne, he will be a trusted member of her inner circle for life. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I think whenever one aspires to have power, to lead, you will need someone that can see the playing field and argue for a consequentialist moral system. For example, um, great military commanders are the best at understanding utilitarianism. Because when you're in a war, it is about winning at all costs. Anything that you do to get to that consequence is good. And you have to make choices. And when all of the choices suck, you got to pick the least sucky one. Yeah. And Tyrion has never had 
the the true empowerment and prestige that the Lannister family commands. Because of his physical deformity, he's always had to um, battle the uh, the reputation that because he is in the Westerosian sense ugly on the outside, that means that internally he must also be a monster. Yeah, and that's that's deep from literature and and history as well. Like he's not the first villain to be presented as hideous to reflect their inner life. That's how we have historically understood our villains. And so for there to be a character like Tyrion whose actual morals are are gray but generally tends on the on the positive end of the spectrum to see that in a character who is perceived by the Westerosi people as monstrous and deformed is a great source of cognitive dissonance. And that lends, I think, to the continued vilification of that character by the people on the outside. I want your insides to look like your outsides, right? Because that's easier for me to understand. And if I'm a, a groundling or a pleb, I want to throw shit at you. Yeah, Tyrion says this in his trial. You know, I'm on trial for being a dwarf. And I wish I was the monster that you all saw because he actually at that point isn't. I would argue that he starts a journey to become that monster when he murders his father. That it's is a, a yeah. fucked up thing to do. He's crossing the Rubicon. Yeah. Um, the show, I think, uh, glosses over that a little too easily and a little too flippantly. Whereas uh, in the books, he goes through deep despair and guilt and horrible alcoholism that nearly, he nearly drinks himself to death in the, in the books in the wake of having, uh, you know, murdered his father and realizing that his first wife was not a whore in, uh, I think her name is Taisha. Taisha. Yeah. And that's, that's some book stuff, but even in the show when he murders his father and then has to take the life of the woman that he loves because she's been in the bed of his father and she's betrayed him that is deep stuff. Like that is going to destroy you. And that's going to take a while to get over and to get back to your ability to believe in the goodness of people and trust. So while I think it's interesting that Tyrion's character arc then swings toward this very sincere and genuine opening up to a character like Daenerys and saying, I believe in a woman after I have been really brought down by the, the betrayal of a woman. I think that's important. It, it needs in the show, it needs more time and it needs more work. Uh, so I'm excited to see where he goes from here, but I'm also really interested to see what's happening in the books. Like I said, I'm still working through them, but I think it's that's a deep that's a deep line for a character to cross and a very difficult thing to come back from, that kind of betrayal. Yeah, and in the, the show, they kind of just speed right through it. And, you know, I think the pressures of the TV show getting to a conclusion means that they didn't want to spend an entire season of Tyrion just destroyed emotionally. But in any event, you know, a little minor quip with how they've handled Tyrion in yeah. the show versus the book. Yeah. Um, not not major. Um, so, yeah, he is a consequentialist. He is a hedonist who learns, he is a hedonist who believes in nothing, who after murdering his father, he learns to start to believe that perchance the world could be made better if the right person is queen and that right person is Daenerys. Yeah. I'm interested because, uh, because of this idea that characters may represent different moral systems. I think that's absolutely spot on, uh, especially when we look at the philosophies behind all of the houses and kind of what they inherit. Looking at him especially as a, um, as a foil to Jon Snow and the Starks is really interesting because... Uh, because I'm not really sure where George R. R. Martin lands on what is the right way to be. Uh, this is a question I'm still working through, but we've seen uh, Ned Stark you know, stick to his guns, stick to his principles and the things that mean the most to him and get shortchanged and get his head chopped off for it. And we saw Jon Snow stick to his guns and his principles and get stabbed in the heart for it. And of course he came back but he suffered the consequences of not being able to read a situation and adapt to that situation. However, on the Stark side, we also saw Rob throw out his principles and throw out the things that his father stood for and 
you know, subvert the expectations of him by marrying someone based on his own individual needs rather than standing for the family, and that was his ultimate downfall. So I don't think that George R. R. Martin is saying you can't stand for something and you can't be rigid and unwavering, but also I don't know if he's saying uh, you know, that, that Tyrion is the way to be either. I'm, I'm unclear as to what is the like, ultimate lesson of this as to the best way to rule if we look at those two philosophies as ways to stand. So I think that's a really good question. One, we have to keep in mind the books haven't completed yet. Absolutely. Nor have the show. So if there is a, I, I doubt there will be a tying lesson or moral that a single thing Not something that we simple, can extrapolate sure. yeah, from the, this very sordid tale. To me, to this point, the reason I think George R. R. Martin is smart enough to have different characters represent some different moral systems is that he is showing the complexities of life. He, is, to me, is making the statement that morality is not easy. It is not simple to know what's right. And money, wealth, and power are corruptive influences. And that um, when we seek money, wealth, and power on its own ends without any other reason or purpose, we could very easily end up as a Cersei or Rob Stark. Yeah, and you can as easily be punished for sticking to your rigid principles as you can be punished for not sticking to your rigid principles. And like life, many of our stories as humans end up getting cut short. Yes. And so many in Game of Thrones do as well. When everybody is engaged in high stakes, violent politics, there will be death. And I think because he, Martin, grounds his story in realism that he draws from, you know, actual histories, he is also telling us like, hey, this is the worst of what humanity can be. And anyone in any moral system can still be bad, right? So you can be the stoic, unwavering leader who sticks to their principles and still get your head chopped off as much as you can be a savvy political actor like um, uh, Marjorie Terrell. Yeah, yeah. And still get, and still get blown, blown up the by fuck wildfire. Up. Yeah. yeah. So I think with Tyrion and where he fits into this, is that anyone that is going to successfully articulate any form of leadership and power has to be able to see the consequences of their actions. And Tyrion understands that at the base level, people are self-interested. If you can tap into what motivates them, you can lead them. There is a reason it's called a Game of Thrones. It's like a chess game, right? So the most successful actors so far, and by successful I mean they've stayed alive and they've stayed you know, in a place where they're not having their dick chopped off on a cross, like the most successful people are able to see a few moves ahead on the chessboard. They're able to anticipate what people are going to do. And even the most savvy, like Littlefinger, eventually are going to meet their ends. But the best way for you to continue surviving and continue persisting in this universe is to be able to play that game. And any, any philosophy that you bring to it, the people that survive can adapt. And that is yeah. one of the other things that Tyrion represents. Adaptability. Absolutely. The ability to pivot and change based on your circumstances. Yeah. And that is his greatest survival asset. You're surrounded uh, by Starks who want to chop your head off. They take you to the Vale. You find your way out of that scenario only to be confronted by the Hill Tribes in which you convert them to your side then you go to King's Landing, you instantly find out who's spying on you and who's not, and you successfully defend the castle, only to then get accused for a crime you didn't commit. And a long journey later, you're now Hand of the Queen, yeah, running one of the most successful armies that has unsullied Dothraki and dragons. Yeah, and there's a deepening truth to it as well, to the changes that this character has undergone. Uh, even though we wish that there could be more time spent on that real change and the the line that he crossed in those killings, coming to Daenerys is a really interesting uh, uh, path for his character to take because we've got someone who has so historically been a cynic 
who has been among people who do not value his uh, his intelligence and the the things that he brings to the table. And to find someone who not only believes in him, but that he believes in is really inspiring and moving for us to watch. It's like It's like all of us going into the first episode of Game of Thrones and being like, Oh, this nerdy show with zombies. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. I am enjoying that for the fun that it is. But then by the end of the first season, we are so engrossed in it and we care so much about the characters that we would do anything for them. There's this, uh, you know, this sort of deepening slide into really, truly loving and believing something that you never thought you could be close and attached to because it, it touches something within you. Absolutely. Totally, totally agree there too. And I think that's why we love Tyrion. Yeah. There's yeah. something you said before about uh, how Martin grounds this in real history. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because we've talked about Game of Thrones a lot on this podcast and we haven't really touched on the uh, the history that Game of Thrones is steeped in. We've talked about a good bit of the tragedy. We've talked about some of the mythology that it's based in. But uh, if you are a Game of Thrones lover like we are, you have probably heard out there that it is heavily, heavily based on the history of the War of the Roses, uh, which is the uh, the war between the House of La- Lancaster and the House of York in England in the uh, like 15th century. So this is a, um, a medieval um, cousins war, as it's called often, between these two warring factions who both wore a different colored rose as their sigil and were constantly vying for the throne of England. Um, Martin has said something funny. He said, I, I look to history and I file off the serial numbers and then I put it in my books. And he... Oh, you're missing one other part of that. What's that? He ratchets it up to 11. Oh, he ratchets <laughs> it up to 11. That's yeah. right. But there is so much truth and so much, uh, you know, so much reality to the things that we see in Game of Thrones, as outrageous as it seems sometimes, that's based in reality. Even the ice dragon, that totally happened. That was real. <laughs> I have no response to that. <laughs> no, the ice dragon wasn't real. But I'm interested ice in exploring. Ice dragons are real? I'm interested in exploring kind of where Tyrion falls within this War of the Roses legacy. And the first place that I went with how do we compare him to someone within that um that piece of history is Richard the Third. Um Richard is Richard is an interesting character because most of what we know about Richard is from Shakespeare and from his play Richard the Third. Um, one of the great quotes from Richard the Third is, "I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days." Now, Richard the Third, his story when you when you look at it, the history that's widely accepted about him it deeply parallels uh, some of Tyrion's track from season four. Richard was the brother of King Edward IV, who uh, took ill and died and left his 12-year-old son to become king. Of course, he's too young to really rule the realm, so his brother Richard becomes the protector of the realm in his stead until the boy is going to come of age. Um, before the boy is actually able to be crowned before his coronation, these rumors have started to spread that Edward IV had multiple wives, that, that he and his brother, that the boy and his brother were products of bigamy and therefore bastards and not legitimate heirs to the throne. So Richard had them locked up in the Tower of London, and they were never seen again. Um, Fun fact, we've been in that prison cell Yeah, in yeah. the Tower of London. We went to London last summer and we took the, uh, the bee feeder tour of the Tower of London, which I highly recommend. It's like the best tourist attraction ever. Yeah, Tower of London is one of the coolest places I've ever seen. And you get to stand in the cell where King Richard... Richard III locked up his nephews and apparently had them murdered. Right, yeah. The accepted history is that he had those sons murdered so they could never you know, overthrow him or ascend to the throne, and he became king instead. Um, now, what's interesting about what we understand of Richard's appearance is, uh, especially in Shakespeare, and this has all been handed down throughout these, uh, you know, these sources throughout history, uh, what we understand about him is that he was a hunchback, that he was so ugly no one could look upon him. Uh, there's a quote from the play that he is deformed, unfinished, and so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. He's so ugly that dogs can't even stand the sight of him. Um, 
And so to, to build this character who is the like murderer of a couple of little boys and then have him be like the most ugly, gruesome monster you can possibly think of is so deeply on the nose. But we have to think about the time that Shakespeare is writing for and the court that he's writing for. He's writing for Queen Elizabeth I, who is the granddaughter of Henry VII, who is the guy who overtook Richard III in battle. He's the guy, he's Henry Tudor. He's the guy who took over, killed him in battle, and then became king and founded the Tudor line, which had Henry VIII and Elizabeth I and all of that. Um, so Shakespeare has a vested interest in making sure that Richard is as villainous as possible. And the primary sources from that time period, from the War of the Roses, are so partisan that this is like almost the best that we have for understanding how people felt about Richard. These rumors that spread that he murdered his, uh, his nephews and that he was this horribly monstrous figure, uh, that's all we have to go on, except... In 2012, his remains were excavated and they pulled up the bones of Richard III and they explored, you know, know, what kind of genetics he had, what is going on in the shapes of his bones and everything. And his spine's a little twisted. He likely had scoliosis, but he was far from hunchbacked. You know, if, if he had this, you know, adolescent onset scoliosis, it's likely that one shoulder was like an inch higher than the other, and his clothes probably would have made up for that, so nobody would have noticed. And he probably had blonde hair and blue eyes. And this character who we have come to recognize as this, like, toad in history, as this disgusting person, was probably pretty normal-looking compared to most of the other, like, inbred people of the House of York. Yeah, and there's a parallel, a few parallels, that I think directly resonate with that in uh, Game of Thrones. So when Prince Oberyn goes to talk to Tyrion, he talks about the myth of the monster of, of the Lannisters. And then when he goes and he actually sees the baby, he's just like, it's a beautiful little baby. Yeah. It's like, okay, its arms are a little small, but like, you know, its its feet are a little small, but there's no tail, there's no fangs. He doesn't have both, you know, male and female genitalia. I thought this was going to be a really interesting monster. And it turns out that to him, because the Dornish have a more open and free and less judgmental uh, frame of reference, he just saw a beautiful little baby. And so that to me resonates with the idea that in particular in medieval society, the exterior appearance and the inner moral virtue are linked. Yeah. The idea of, of beauty of body is beauty of mind. So the heroes are always great looking. The villains are always twisted and, you know, demented Absolutely. And, and physically ugly. It's where we get the idea that a witch has a crooked nose covered in warts with green skin. It even takes us back to what we talked about last week with beauty and the beast and inner versus outer beauty and how that, that uh, love is transformative. Uh, yeah. And we also see another part in a season, I, I forget if it's five or six, where Arya goes to a play in Bravos, And in that, we see a play that's about the death of Joffrey, in which Tyrion is portrayed in the most villainous and horrible and scathing way. And we're seeing the show make a commentary about utilizing theater as political propaganda, as a way to tell the history of something. And that if you can control the theater around it, you can control the history around it. Yeah. So then Tyrion becomes the monster that in the end of season four, he says he wishes he was. In the minds of everyone, he becomes that that exact monster, that exact Richard Third toad. And that transformation is about the power of the politics dictating the art. Yeah. And this is, this takes me back to Shakespeare, you know, because history is theatrical and theater is historical. If you're going to, you know, follow that snake eats tail kind of thing. I love that. But before we get to, you know, the modern period, history doesn't have necessarily a code of ethics. Uh, History even today is biased, but we know, especially in the time of the war of the roses, that it's a deeply partisan time and that, 
anyone who is writing, anyone who's a primary source on that period is writing as either a Lancastrian or a York. There are very few neutral parties. And tomorrow, if the Lancastrians are in power now, tomorrow the Yorkists could take over and you could have your head chopped off for writing something Lancastrian. So there is there's very little that survives from that time that has any sense of objectivity. But the history that's passed down is is meant to serve a purpose. It's Shakespeare trying to impress the Queen of England. And it's, you know, back to that scene between Oberyn and Tyrion when he talks about Cersei and how she spoke about Tyrion, the, the monster that had killed her mother. She's the one who's saying, like, he's so ugly, you're not even going to be able to believe it. He's so disgusting. And she ramps this up in a way that the audience, uh, Elia and Oberyn, are like, oh yeah, we can't wait to see that hideous monster because the public wants theater, the public wants drama. And this is something that Game of Thrones is so interested in being in conversation with as well, is drama and uh, and reality and the sense that tragedy and theater have catharsis, they have structure, they have... Uh, a plot that moves towards this rising action and a climax and then falls and wraps itself up neatly in a bow, it's interested in subverting that, right? It's interested in saying, yeah, your life could be cut short any moment. There's not necessarily any lesson that I'm teaching you from this, or there might be multiple lessons that conflict with each other because that's the nature of real history and real reality. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. So until... The, the era known as the Enlightenment. So until the 18th century, Western history uh, was not about an objective um, you know, search for truth as it is now. So previous to that, anyone that chronicled events did it for a reason. For example, one of the most famous Roman historians is a man called Livy. Livy wrote the entire history of Rome up until the reign of Augustus. He worked for Augustus. Augustus is the first emperor of Rome. He is the grandnephew of Caesar, and he needed a history to corroborate and confirm the might of his rule, to which Livy was his partner. So when you read Livy, you have to understand that it's coming from the pro-Augustine lens. And, and Livy is actually quite honest about it, too. You know, so the histories that we see in medieval times, the medieval chroniclers, they usually followed, were part of the court of whoever they were following. So if you were a high-ranking, you know, French monk and France is going on a crusade in the Holy Land, you might go with them and you might write everything the army does. Well, that's going to paint everyone on the, the other side, everyone you're crusading against all of the Muslims in the most negative light possible while putting the French in the most positive light possible. Yeah. And what we see with Shakespeare's quote unquote histories is that he is doing just that. He's writing it for the powerful. So the old saying that history is written by the victors Mm -hmm. is marginally incorrect. History is written for the victors. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. I now am victorious. I have now conquered. And someone will usually say, let me tell your story then to gain your favor. In this case with Richard III, it's Shakespeare. And we, in the contemporary sense, um, we need to understand that. And what Martin, his, one of his geniuses is his critique about history is historiographical, meaning he is critiquing the way history is written. He has studied history enough to say how it's written is important. And he, in in that show, is critiquing the very narratives that inspired him to write this, this his story. Absolutely. Um, it, it's striking when you look at the parallels between Richard III's uh, history that we have widely accepted today that's still under debate by scholars of the locking up of the nephews who are bastards and having them killed and then paralleling that to Tyrion's uh, trial for the death of his nephew Joffrey. It's a very similar story. But the primary difference is that 
we will never really know what happened with Richard III. We will never truly know his motivations. We can speculate on them as much as possible, but no source is going to confirm it for us 100%. We are on the journey with Tyrion, and we are seeing a character who is accused of the very same things, who is viewed just as monstrously, and whose rumors are spread at just as alarming a rate. And yet we are on the journey with him, and we can see it through his eyes. It's an interesting casting choice, you know, too, to, to look at Peter Dinklage. And I know that things are different within the books, that he is uh, portrayed in a very different light, and there is a lot more ugliness to that character physically in the books than we are actually allowed to see on screen. And part of that is Hollywood. But Peter Dinklage is a very attractive man. Like, he is a good-looking actor. I totally agree. put in that yeah, role. He's and a I handsome think- dude. And I think that despite, you know, the, the ideas of Hollywood just wanting things to be more pleasurable for us to look at, that's also a comment. It's, we are Oberyn, right? We're placed in a world that's closed-minded. We're placed in a medieval-style history world where any difference is regarded as ugliness or is regarded as monstrosity. And yet, like, a very attractive actor is playing that character, and we can absolutely see his beauty, we can see his intelligence, we can see what's so valuable about him. And so in that way, it's making a comment as well on the history that is dramatized, that is turned into theater for us, that is, is decked up with a fake nose and a wig and so much more ugliness so that we are able to accept that that ugliness inside, that it's made more palatable for us that that's a monster. I think another really great lesson with Tyrion is that uh, disability is not detriment. Right. And the fact that he is physically disabled in his stature, in the book, uh, when he gets that, the scar we see from the Battle of Backwater, in the book, his, his whole nose falls off. Right. So he's walking around without a nose, um, which has to be pretty awful. Um, in the in the in the show, you're right. They they make it a little uh, more pleasurable. Yeah, I don't know though. In a medieval world, I might be happier without olfactory sensors because I bet it doesn't smell great anywhere except no. maybe High Garden. Yeah, yeah. Except for High Garden, totally good point. But what Tyrion proves is that a critique on the value system that says nobility is morally noble. So what Tyrion says is that, no, you know, in fact, I'm not noble. He tells Jon Snow, like, don't forget what you are. The world won't wear it like armor and no one can use it against you. So if everybody thinks he is a perverted little lech, he's going to be a perverted little lech and he's going to be that. And that way no one can use that against him. And In that way, Tyrion understands that people only have power when you give it to them. And he is very careful who he gives power to. So he gives power to his father because that is his father. So he will answer and listen to him. But then he has to take that power from his father by killing him. Then he gives power to Daenerys. Other than that, Tyrion won't give an upper hand to anyone. And anyone who tries to disenfranchise him usually ends up worse off. He can typically flip those scenarios because people think they can, based by his stature, based on his size, they assume that they can totally control him. What Tyrion proves is that intelligence, creativity, charisma, and wit are actually the real values that you can use to survive. Yeah, yeah. He exposes the great Lannister lie. You know, the, the Lannister lie that uh, that exterior beauty and that uh, what looks like riches and, and power and elegance and uh, sophistication and delicacy on the outside is often much more self-interested, is often much more uh, dastardly, is often trying to social climb in a way that leaves others in a heap at the bottom of the ladder. And yet Tyrion is able to ascend that ladder in a different way that is more about compromise, is more about helping others to help you. He creates a ladder for himself out of the boosts that other people will give him, and he does that by giving them something back. Yeah, and um, that, I think, is why we all love him. Yeah. 
So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the fact that he killed his father. Let's do it. Let's dive into the darker side because there's a part of Tyrion that is very dark. So there's a part of him that's comfortable with murder. There's a part of him that's comfortable with lying. And there's a part of him that's comfortable with duplicity and dishonesty. And that part of him, I think, takes hold in season four and ultimately culminates with him finally killing his father. He's been accused his entire life of killing his mom, which we know as viewers is completely ridiculous. You know, childbirth is a dangerous and complicated thing. And when you don't have the greatest medicine and technology, mothers will die in childbirth and babies will often die as well. But in this world, he is to blame, right? In this world, he is guilty of matricide, of being a mother killer. The fact that he adds literally also killing his father, do you think that changes his sort of status or should it change his status as a fan favorite and hero? It's really interesting because we've talked about patricide on the podcast before and what it represents within stories and how in many cases on the hero's journey, it either symbolically or literally represents a hero coming into their own. So defeating the father figure, whether that's Darth Vader or even Voldemort as the father figure, uh, a character has to face that trial in order to, you know, grow into adulthood in order to come to terms with the mother energy later, uh, that there is this sort of psychological thing going on with needing to overtake your father. But for Tyrion, it feels different, right? This feels like revenge. Uh, so we've got a character in Tywin Lannister who has never been afraid to fight and who has never been afraid to say, I am in it for the glory of my family, except for that guy. I hate that guy. He's not my son. And there's something in Tyrion's killing of Tywin in the most humiliating fashion, you know, on a chamber pot with a crossbow through the heart. There's something about that that is so vengeful and so ugly that as satisfying as it might be for us in the moment, we can't imagine that's on Tyrion's way toward any convening with a higher energy, right? That is a moment of true and powerful darkness. And then to see the betrayal of Shay. I'm really disturbed by what happens there. So I, I don't know where I land on this yet, but I don't think this is in any way a triumph for Tyrion. No, in fact, it's a, it's a defeat. So he's been defeated literally in the trial for his life. And because he has two friends and only two friends in King's Landing, in Varys and Jamie, they've come up with a plan to smuggle him to save his life. Everybody else wants to see him hang. Everybody else wants to see him dead, including his own father. And when he sees Shay, realizing that, you know, Shay never loved him, it was always a business to her, and his betrayal that Shay not only testified against him in the trial, Shay's now sleeping with his father. When he decides to strangle her and then shoot his father, it felt like a line was crossed, right? Yeah. It felt like, not this standard Luke Skywalker confronting Darth Vader to become the Jedi and restore peace to the galaxy. It felt like cold-blooded, ruthless murder. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's passion and there's pain and there's turmoil wrapped up in it that we can't really blame him for. Because sure. I would feel just as betrayed and I would want to lash out. He's right to hate his father. He certainly is right to hate his father. Yeah. He is right to use political machinations to take power away from his father. But is he right to murder him while he shits? Mm. I feel like the show has said he has. Right. The show has. has rewarded him. The show has taken that as his step towards Daenerys, which is, in other words, his step to being the next great lord of Westeros. And... I I feel like that is a shame, you know, because I think a show that grinds, grounds itself in realism, a show in which Jamie Lannister's honor is besmirched for being a Kingslayer so gruesomely, like everywhere he goes, people whisper behind his back, Kingslayer, Kingslayer. Shouldn't Tyrion be Handslayer? 
right? Shouldn't they be like, you You killed your, your king? You're a kingslayer. You were found guilty by the gods, and then you killed your father. Shouldn't that, that reputation carry some more weight? Shouldn't there be a cost? And I wonder what it means for the show to not really have Tyrion pay a cost for that. When other characters in similar scenarios have paid huge costs, Tyrion has seemed to have gotten kind of gotten away with that. Yeah, I think that says something large about the character, um, you know, completely. I think that Tyrion has gotten away with a lot. And while I agree with you reputation-wise, I agree with you about the killing of Tywin. I think for me, the most, the much more emotionally um, disturbing and and portentous for this character is the killing of Shay, um, because to take the life of someone with your own hands and take the life of someone that you loved um, and take the life of someone that you believed loved you feels. Uh, and the scene itself is presented so sexually, it's so charged with that sexual energy that has been sort of turned into this shadow energy of the strangling in bed. There's something much more, um, there's something much darker about that and something that leads me down a path that feels much more difficult to, uh, to empathize with. Okay, so whether it's the killing of Shay or killing of Tywin, I think the yeah, point still stands. Absolutely. I so I think reputationally, it's not going to hurt him so much for of killing killing Shay. But um, I'm interested to see what the cost is for him, whether that's a consequence from outside or if that is, uh, you know, watching his character change. I I need to see something. Yeah. So imagine this, right? You are super freaking powerful. You have carved out a piece of massive territory, and you're radically reshaping that territory in your image. And you believe for the greater good. You have armies. You have dragons. You have cities that you've conquered. In comes someone that says, listen, I know your ambition is to conquer more. I'm the person that can help you. Don't you say, okay, but what have you done up until then? Well, I killed my father and I strangled my lover. And I've been accused of killing my nephew who was a king. Don't you think you might be like, you might not be the person I want Unless on my side. those people are Lannisters, and I <laughs> want know? all the Lannisters dead. But even as such, right? Like, so I feel like his, like, entryway into <clears throat> Daenerys' court in season six and in season seven was very easy. So we all want it as fans, right? We've all wanted Daenerys and Tyrion to ride dragons, and rule in, in Westeros. And so I'm glad that it happened, but I often wonder, you know, what price has Tyrion really paid for his actions? And does he still deserve to be a hero? Right. And I feel like the show has said he doesn't pay a price and yes, he deserves to still be your hero. But I, I just wonder like, am I okay with that? With right. what he's done? Yeah. We should all ask ourselves if we're okay with that. And I think the show should too. Yeah, it is a, a bit of a, a criticism that it doesn't really do that, and I think I think it's because of time, right? A show it needs to do a season every single year. It's got to ratchet it up. There's only a few characters left, and it's got the pressure being the most popular show on TV. Yeah, so I think it. I, I understand why the show probably didn't do it, um, but you know, I still kind of wish for for a, just a, a pause and remember that. Tyrion strangled his lover and killed his father. Yeah. That's without not okay. And without uh, a greater triumph waiting yeah. at the end. You know, and then gets to be hand of the queen. Yeah. I don't know if that's okay with me. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts, love? I think this has been a really interesting case study of Tyrion. I think he is such a fascinating character that we love, that is so deeply likable, and yet, like we have shared in the end, exposes some real biases even on our part in terms of what we're able to accept and what we're able to morally license in this universe. Uh, I think exploring Tyrion from the inside out is uh, is leaving me with a lesson of, once again, needing to look harder at the universe that I am diving into and making sure that 
I'm not necessarily placing my own um, my own moral uh, lens upon it because that's not always the most fruitful way to go about watching medieval TV. But I am filtering it through my own perspective and making sure I'm constantly asking the question of whether someone deserves the ceremony and the pomp and circumstance that they are getting. Great. I love that final thought. And uh, I'm just going to continue to, you know, drink and know things. I drink and I know things. That's what I do. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.